going on, Core Consult family? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Um, with me today is a guest that you're probably going to be pretty familiar with, uh, Dr. Brian Gilbert. Um, and Cole is uh, not here, so Dr. Brian Gilbert is also going to be my co-host today since Cole's slacking, even though we are recording this at like midnight. Brian, what's up, man? What's going on, brother? Sorry, sorry uh, I ran Cole off like that. Here's the thing about Cole. His dedication to the podcast is it's something that I've been questioning for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> very nice, very nice. So actually, um, we actually recorded another episode earlier tonight anyway, so. And then we, we, we were trying to figure out how we're going to release them, so now the numbering system's all off, and so it's a mess. I'll figure that out later, but <laughs> thanks for doing this, man. No problem, man. So this lecture today, or I guess I say lecture, so this is, I'm in uh, school mode. The, uh, this episode is going to be on fluid management. Um, so this is something that actually was requested by my PA students. Um, they've been dealing with some fluid stuff in uh, their ClinMed class, and they had a little bit of it in my class. And you know, mine was a super brief summary, and I was kind of letting ClinMed refer to that. But I was like, you know what? I do want to cover more of it from like a strictly farm basis. So I had to bring in some big guns because uh, that's not my specialty. Um, so Brian is going to lead us through this and, uh, I'm looking forward to learning myself in this one, man. Sweet, man. Uh, so just, yeah, I appreciate the, uh, the offer to come in and talk about this. So like brief background on myself again, for the core console family that, uh, maybe forgot, uh, fifth time on the show. So thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. First of all, gotta give the internet what they want, man. <laughs> um, so I'm an ED critical care pharmacy specialist at uh, Wesley Medical Center in uh, Wichita, Kansas. Uh, and so deal with fluid resuscitation and the management of fluids uh, quite frequently, uh, whether it whether it be, you know, in the initial resuscitation or in the uh, the maintenance phase of uh, patients. Um, but yeah, just happy to be here, happy to, to discuss this. This is a, a topic near and dear to my heart. Um, and so we'll just kind of get underway. Um, you know, initially when you start to uh, discuss fluids and the management of fluids, especially in patients, it really it goes down to um, a stewardship approach. You know, we use the word stewardship for uh, anticoagulation, infectious disease, and it really is a stewardship approach when you talk about the management for, for uh, critically ill or emergency department, or even internally internal med patients in terms of fluids. It's all about getting the, the right fluid, the right volume, um, and, and getting it uh, for the right amount of time to your patients. Um, and so we'll try to break it down into the three approaches uh, or the three different types of fluids that you may see in your practice, um, starting with either isotonic, hypertonic, or hypotonic fluids, at least initially. Nice. Um, and so I think the one that most people are going to probably be most familiar with is going to be normal saline, right? So we talk about uh, sodium chloride, 154 milliequivalents of sodium, 154 milliequivalents of chloride. 
um, and it's quote unquote our normal saline. And so it's the one that most folks are are us- utilizing in their practice today, uh, probably most familiar with. However, um, when we just start to use this, we would consider this as our isotonic fluid of choice when we uh, begin our resuscitation for most patients. Ups and downs to that, ups and downs to uh, a lot of the fluids that we'll discuss today. Um, but for the most part, um, this will be your go-to. Additionally, um, you know, you may begin to discuss, uh, I should even back up before that, we talk about normal failing. We should talk about the difference between what we call crystalloids and what we call colloids, right? So crystalloids are just essentially just fluids that create an osmotic gradient, um, whereas colloids uh, are going to be fluids that create an oncotic pressure. So for the most part, we'll, we'll discuss um, with our colloids as uh, albumin. So 5%, 25%. So you can even throw head of starches in there every now and then, um, which we don't particularly use anymore. But um, those are uh, our two mainstays of therapy there. Um, yeah, so when we begin to discuss patients, you wanted to, to try to remember what exactly a crystalloid is and what a colloid is and what the benefits of one is versus the other. Uh, and you'll begin to find that uh, when you take a stewardship approach to it, that um, your crystalloids will uh, convey certain advantages to resuscitation, whereas in certain situations you may want a colloid. Um, all right, so we'll jump right in. <laughs> It's kind of a broad topic, not the sexiest topic, but we'll get through it. <laughs> oh, we're going to we're going to definitely make fluid sexy again. Oh my gosh, bringing sexy back. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll start with um so let's say isotonic fluids. We have a somebody we have a patient that is let's say the easiest example is distributive sh- distributive shock most likely from sepsis. Right, so we have third spacing, we have uh, intravascular leaking, we have uh, those leaky capillaries where we need to go ahead and begin having um, intravascular volume resuscitation. Um, for the most part, we're going to want to utilize something that can one expand that intravascular volume and create perfusion to the vital organs. So, something like um, either you know it, at this point you would consider a colloid or a crystalloid. Um, something to um, be beneficial. Each is going to expand the intravascular volume, create a lot a lot of macrovascular flow to those uh, internal organs, um, and something that you would want to uh, utilize. Uh, for the crystalloids, if you have a patient that's not in renal failure or heart failure or liver failure, something that you may have a disruption in oncotic pressure, something where you may uh, may not need that oncotic pressure like you would with a colloid, crystalloids is a great uh, tool for this. Um, it, it expands that intravascular volume without having to um, create a lot of edema, uh, at least initially uh, when, when we begin to talk about um, fluids, you want to uh, discuss what can stay within the intravascular space and what expands out, um, especially in a distributive shock phase. Things like um, normal saline initially will stay within that intravascular space, but over time they begin to become more leaky at that point um, if you haven't corrected the underlying cause. Really? So initially, 
Sorry to cut, sorry to interrupt, but real quick too, for you know to take it back even farther. You mentioned it real briefly, but you mentioned like third spacing. Can you real quick break down kind of like you know when we have like the um, intramuscular versus like interstitial um, third spacing, like just some of those basic terms for those who sure, have. Sure, sure, absolutely, absolutely. So the intramuscular space, you can just essentially uh, consider the volume without within the vein or the art- artery itself. The, the amount of fluid within that space, blood and just uh, water and et cetera, the things that are going to the, uh, the vital organs themselves, whereas the interstitium or the extracellular space is the um, fluid between the actual cells themselves. So you could consider it uh, where you would have the, uh, I'll put up my hands here for just crude purposes here. Um, this is your... Uh, and look at those cuticles. They look really good. <laughs> uh, but essentially, this is your uh, intravascular space. Normally, we have no uh, leaks or and we have tight junctions between that. But during something like sepsis, we have these sort of leaky capillaries where fluid can now all of a sudden get between each of the cells themselves or the interstitium or the extracellular space as uh uh, my C was alluding to. And so those are uh, areas where um, you want to go ahead and try to resuscitate with volume to try to restore things that you have uh, naturally lost, This is especially in like things like sepsis or, or anaphylactic shock, things like that. Cool. Um, so the things that you need to consider in this is like with crystalloids, especially is what is uh, contained within that crystalloid. So for normal saline, we have, uh, you know, sodium and chloride. For lactated ringers, we have uh, sodium, chloride, potassium, calcium. We have a whole abundance of things. Um, You also have plasmolite. Um, And so crystalloids can actually be broken down into what we call um, balanced or unbalanced uh, fluids. And so when we begin to d- discuss balance versus unbalance, we're really talking about the chloride content uh, of the crystalloid itself. So for normal saline, we talk about a chloride uh, content of 154 milliequivalents versus uh, 109 or 110, depending on the reference you use for lactated ringers. Uh, in terms of crystalloid resuscitation. And the reason that we uh, really discuss uh, a chloride content is that uh, hyperchloremic metabolic uh, resuscitation can occur in in large volume resuscitation where uh, eventually you begin to see an acidosis develop uh, with larger volumes of uh, hyperchloremic Uh, crystalloids utilized or unbalanced crystalloids, uh, things like normal saline. And so when you start to see that, you can disrupt the patient's acid-base balance and uh, create an acidosis that may potentially wasn't there initially or worsen an acidosis that was there. Um, And so, you know, really when you start to try to uh, look at that and why that makes a difference is that a lot of outcomes are associated with high chloride content in patients, um, increased in um, one, mortality, which is one of the bigger ones that we care about, right? So increased mortality associated with uh, increased chloride loads, renal failure, uh, and then also you can have increased um, acidosis as we talked about and 
um, vasopressor response. So those are all things that we consider uh, important in terms of outcomes data and why uh, resuscitation with high chloride uh, content fluids is so important. All right, I know that's a lot to take in. It's a lot of dense material, but that's good, um, man. It, it's really important to consider when you um, when you look at the fluid choice. Also, additionally, and I'll bring this up, and there's some data associated with it, and it, it not only are the fluids that you're utilizing for fluid resuscitation important, but the fluids that you're utilizing in medication diluents. So things that you're taking the medication and putting into the, um, you know, the medication to dilute it further is also a big uh, important topic. There was actually a study done out of the University of Kentucky that looked at uh, whether or not patients were utilizing normal saline or uh, dextrose D5W um, and the, the diluent content, and they found um, increased rates of, uh, you know, renal failure, increased mortality associated with normal saline utilization. So again, that chloride content is going to be one of the most important things you consider <clears throat> during the resuscitation of certain patients. Okay, cool. Um, all right. So when we start to think about crystalloids, we want to really think about um, especially in, you know, our isotonic or distributive shock patients, we really want to consider, you know, that chloride content. Well, let's say that they're a renal failure patient or they're a heart failure patient or liver failure patient. You're going to want to go ahead and consider things like um, things that you can go ahead and get a large intravascular volume effect without having to give that much volume. And that's where colloids come into effect. So it's things like albumin. So the thing to consider with albumin is what concentration you're going to utilize. So the two uh, concentrations that we typically utilize is 5% and 25%. For resuscitation purposes, you're always going to want to use 5%. Um, that oncotic pressure that you get with the 5% is enough to uh, stay within the intravascular space and maybe even draw some from the interstitium, um, but it's not enough to dehydrate the cells that are um, within that intravascular lining itself. Whereas 25%, what you see a lot of times is you can dehydrate a patient if you're utilizing a large volume resuscitation with um, that concentration. So typically what you will see for 25% uh, uh, albumin is usually for paracentesis, uh, potentially even thoracentesis, um, usually as a way to um, you'll see with like a LASIK chaser uh, as a way to um, get rid of certain uh, excess volume. So for colloids purposes, always going to utilize 5% for resuscitation. All right. Again, super dense. <laughs> a lot of questions you really sometimes can come up on that. So, so when would you actually, and you may have said it and I just missed it, when, when are you going to be thinking 25% albumin there? So usually it's going to be somebody that's a, a liver failure patient that's got a large volume gotcha. uh, paracentesis that's needed. So they've got albumins of like one or less than one, less than two um, that have a lot of uh, volume within that uh, third space or in that, in that intrapleural space that you're trying to remove or if you've removed it, now you're trying to maintain fluid 
within the intravascular space and not just go back into that intrapleural space. So you'll you'll go ahead and give that 25% to maintain that fluid within that, um, you know, within that intravascular space and create that oncotic pressure to pull it back. Um, so usually that's what we will utilize. And, and is there any like particular reason or situation where you would use one of the others, like the um, hydroxyethyl starch or the like dextran or anything? Yeah. So, I mean, so for, for the most part, um, you know, header starches uh, and, and like you said, are, are sort of old school. Mm -hmm. A lot of surgical patients would um, utilize the header starches before. However, there was increased renal failure associated with their use in sepsis. Um, and then also uh, increased mortality associated with their, their utilization during uh, distributive shock. So we typically don't use those anymore. We'll u utilize, um, you know, albumin. So th those types of colloids, um, they tried to make their comeback maybe two or three years ago. But again, we found really no difference and they're a lot more expensive. So we typically will steer uh, towards either, you know, again, resuscitation with crystalloids or potentially utilizing uh, colloids in those situations. And is there a, like a reason why we couldn't use albumin in a patient? Like, is, is there like a con contraindication to albumin? Um, there's a, you know, it's, it is a blood product. So mm -hmm. you potentially could have some transfusion related reactions associated with it. Um, they also need to have usually a, a larger bore IV. Um, there's some tubing, uh, that's different with that versus like crystalloid resuscitation, but, uh, for the most part, there's not a ton of different um, uh, adverse effects associated with its use, but um, since it has really no mortality difference or, um, you know, and it's a little bit more expensive than crystalloids, we try to steer towards utilizing crystalloids more than than colloids, in, in particular albumin. Um, but... You know, it's it's one of those situations where the guidelines for, especially for distributive shock and septic shock, the surviving sepsis campaign will say use utilize crystalloids for first. Um, and so it's generic statements like that that kind of get people in trouble where they will resuscitate with large volume crystalloids in a patient that potentially could have a benefit of colloids. Um, and so you just have to be careful and really just identify which patient you have in front of you and who potentially could have a uh, benefit of that. So uh, you just have to, to be cognizant of that moving forward. Cool. Um, so yeah, so really uh, when we begin to discuss what else, who could potentially else benefit from colloids? Because um, we really don't talk about colloids in really any other situation uh, moving forward. Um, the only other uh, patient population that really benefits from colloids as opposed to crystalloids is um, potentially burn patients. Mm -hmm. So we begin to uh, utilize large volume resuscitation of crystalloids in burn patients. Um, one measure that we try to utilize to see if we're adequately resuscitating is um, urine output. And so if we have a patient that has adequate urine output, but then is still developing edema, um, we would be begin to consider the utilization of uh, colloids. And so we call that colloid creep. Um, and so it's a certain indication where um, 
if you want to, you know, especially in burn patients who have lost a lot of albumin, a lot of protein due to the burn and pathophysiology process, you may potentially see benefit in adding albumin, uh, albumin, albumin, albumin early <laughs> in certain situations um, where you're um, beginning to see adverse effects of high volume crystalloid resuscitation. Um, and so th that's another patient population that uh, I had not previously mentioned, but may potentially benefit from colloid resuscitation. Other than that, for distributive shock, um, you know, crystalloid should be your first that you utilize, and then you should go from there. So is there like a, like a certain um, level of like a pain, like a certain level or severity, I guess I should say of a burn victim that you would just go right to um, like albumin or something? So typically you will only utilize albumin after crystalloid resuscitation and somebody with large volume uh, burns. So typically 20% total body surface area. Um, so one of the things that we utilize in burn patients in terms of trying to calculate the total burn volume of, of uh, resuscitation that we need is called the Parkland formula. So you use 4% uh, of the total body surface area, oh, it's four times the total body, body surface area um, times their weight in, that, in kilograms. And that gives you the, the total volume of fluid that you need within the first 24 hours. Um, and so um, you utilize that initially. And then um, those are usually patients that you would say, okay, I'm gonna probably have to end up using albumin in these patients depending on the severity of burns. but um, they usually are super low in albumin because they um, have, due to the injury itself, um, have uh, a hypoalbuminemia. Gotcha. Um, the other big question that always comes up too is who or how much volume should I utilize in resuscitation? And so, you know, if you're utilizing guideline recommendations like the surviving sepsis campaign, so it goes back into like book answer versus like um, clinical answers. So the book answer is the 30 cc's per kilo um, for um, intra uh, intravascular volume resuscitation of sepsis patients in um you know, for sepsis and your and your and your book answer, but the real answer is that you really need to be able to monitor these patients. You can't just do a one size fits all um, resuscitation goal for all these patients, and you really need to continue to monitor these things. So we have different uh, parameters that we can measure, um, and we can be broken down into static versus dynamic parameters. Um, static parameters are things like blood pressure, heart rate, um, that you know, the old adage is that when you give a resuscitation to or a fluid bolus to a patient, you should see the heart rate go down and blood pressure go up. Those aren't always very sensitive and specific at uh, the amount of intravascular volume that you see uh, resuscitate a patient, um, specifically with like crystalloids and normal saline. After you give a thousand cc bolus, 30 minutes after resuscitating that patient, only 250 cc's of that thousand bolus stays within the intravascular space. So utilizing things like heart rate and blood pressure are not always the gold standard nowadays. Um, again, if you're using book answers versus, you know, true clinical parameters, um, those aren't the best to utilize. So things we utilize in practice now are 
we'll use uh, bedside ultrasound. So point of care ultrasound or POCUS, as you may hear it um, sometimes utilize, we'll actually look at uh, a patient's uh, echocardiogram bedside and try to calculate how hyperdynamic that patient is in terms of their heart rate um, and their um, output. The other thing we'll look at is the inferior vena cava collapsibility size. So essentially how how much fluid um, is maintaining that inferior vena cava uh, diameter. And so we'll look at that as well. The other is that um, we'll look at stroke volume variance. Um, things again, how much fluid is being pumped out of the heart uh, from the, um, the SV uh, with each beat of the heart. And so if you have a large variance there, you could potentially uh, utilize fluid in that situation. Yeah. And then the last is we'll use um, uh, pulse pressure uh, product as well. We'll utilize that as a way to determine the uh, amount of fluid that a patient could potentially utilize. So these are all different dynamic parameters as I'm, I'm utilizing without um, you know, going into too much detail about it. Um, but these are all different things to try to assess the, the volume um, capability of a patient as opposed to just giving a flat, you know, resuscitation volume. <laughs> man, that was me as well. Man, that's like one of the nerdiest things I've ever said. But No, it's all good, man. <laughs> um, and so those are all different things. I mean, there's... Um, different ways to, to, to try to utilize that data. But in terms of fluid, those are um, probably the key concepts of distributive shock. Um, so, you know, probably move on to the utilization of hypertonic fluids next, um, which is one of my favorite uh, topics as well, especially um, as it pertains to, to usually neurocritical illness, we'll utilize hypertonic uh, fluids usually in the setting of cerebral edema. The other setting you may potentially use hypertonic uh, uh, fluids is um, during uh, hyponatremia. You know, if you want to utilize like hypertonic saline to resuscitate and utilize, you know, lower volumes with uh, still adding that uh, hypernatremic effect. So as it pertains to like hypertonic saline, as it pertains to like cerebral edema and things like that. So uh, the way it really works is that you create a hypertonic gradient to where you can actually like draw free fluid um, from the damaged cerebral tissue. Um, and, the, and the other thing that it actually does um, when we're discussing hypertonic fluid for um, ICP monitoring is it actually can uh, lower the blood viscosity uh, around the cerebral arteries itself. So when you lower the blood viscosity, you actually cause vasoconstriction. But for the setting of fluids in, the, in this discussion, what it does is creates that gradient. So you draw that free fluid. Now, the issue with that is that, again, if you're uh, continuing to have high chloride content, especially in hypertonic saline, um, you can create those acidosis, you can create renal failure, you can create increases in mortality, especially in neurocritical illness. Um, there was a retrospective study done uh, out of uh, Methodist University up in uh, Memphis 
where they found that even just a mild hyperkalemia was associated with increased mortality and neurocritical illness. Um, so okay. you may see certain uh, institutions where they'll utilize um, quote unquote buffered solutions to try to uh, avoid um, that hyperkalemic load that you see uh, really? in certain uh, hypertonic solutions. So uh, those types of fluids would be like sodium acetate, sodium bicarbonate as well, um, routine 50 milli equivalent uh, sodium bicarbonate that we utilize um, is actually a hypertonic solution. So you can utilize that in certain situations. Um, but yeah, again, understanding the, the role of what it's, what you're trying to do um, and the adverse effects associated with it is, is crucial. It's a, it's a stewardship approach. Okay, what else? I'm trying to look through my notes, make sure I hit everything for you. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's just, a, it's a topic that it's really, it's, it's probably one of the most important things that we, you know, don't discuss in terms of like pharmacy school, medical school, PA school, like it's, it's one of the most critical aspects of resuscitation of patients. And we just, we don't really spend that much time on it because we take it sort of for granted um, which is, which is uh, unfortunate. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Trying to think now. So that's hypertonic fluids for the most part. Um, and then really you may start to look at um, hypotonic fluids in certain situations, specifically in the setting of, um, you know, uh, hypernatremia. So you may have a situation where you need to actually lower um, sodium volume. So you may begin to utilize more um, hypotonic fluids um, where we would um, essentially call those um, free water at that point. So things like, or things that are gonna lower sodium. So you could essentially break down hypotonic fluids in either into free water, which is like D5W, D10W, um, which, uh, you know, metabolically get get processed into CO2 and, and free water. Uh, or again, just um, uh, hypotonic in the fact that they're just not, uh, there's not as many solutes in that, in that situation. Which again, we're going to potentially only utilize that uh, in the setting of hypernatremia. Um, the other, the other big component of that is if you have a patient that has a uh, serum sodium that's hypertonic initially before you start jumping into the hypotonic fluids, you'll want to go ahead and to assess the rationale or reason the patient is hypo or hypernatremic before you begin to, to utilize those fluids. So you'll want to get a urine sodium, urine, uh, urine osmol, and assess whether or not it's a volume or a sodium issue. Um, but potentially could could potentially utilize those um, hypotonic fluids uh, in those situations as well. The the part that you have to be careful in is that when if you have a patient that is in renal failure or if you have a patient that's in heart failure, um, you could potentially give this patient a large volume of free water, and all of a sudden you could send them and exacerbate that that condition either uh, with their renal failure or heart failure. And and I'm glad you brought that up because that's the, the question that always is weird for me is, you know, like, in, in especially someone who doesn't do this all the time, so I have to actually think about it um, quite a bit. So if if I, uh, 
you know, with, with like dextrose, it ultimately gets broken down into free water, right? So, right. Um, you know, the one of the questions that I've heard before is, well, why can't we just give free water then? Why do we have to give them dextrose first and let it be broken down? Yeah, so if you actually give free water into a vein, what you'll be cause is a severe um, – um, you're, you're essentially giving such a severe hypotonic fluid that you would uh, cause cerebral edema, right? Mm-hmm. So you're get, so free water follows stuff, right? That's one of the things I like to say is in the if you're giving free water, stuff is going to be within the cells, and the cells that we're most worried about free water flowing to is in the brain, and so got by giving, uh, you know, an, a, a you know, a bolus of free water itself, you're going to exacerbate any, you know, any cerebral edema uh, that the patient may have, or you may cause a cerebral edema and then you'll need a good lawyer. So <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> Got any more? T- no, you're good, yeah, man. You're you're tidbits? No, really, it's, again, it's all about fluid stewardship in these patients, really, before you begin to give. And that's the thing too, is, um, you know, uh, giving fluids. So one of the things I like to convey to my students and my residents is that fluids are, are, if you look at the definition of what a medication is, fluids meet that definition. And so fluids are not a benign thing. They're not a benign process. And so if you're giving them, they need to have a, they need to serve a medical purpose. They need to have a rationale and they need to have like a specific dose and volume that you need to have in mind before you um, just give them, you know, having a patient that's MPO and starting them on maintenance fluids is not an indication for fluids. Like it's just not, if it's, they're going to, patient's going to be dehydrated and the patient's going to be X, Y, Z. Sure. Go ahead and start them because they're MPO, but just starting it just because my intending told me to is not a, a rationale or a reason. Um, those are not, uh, that doesn't serve a medical purpose. And so we need to get away from that. Specifically, because like, especially in the critically ill patient population, high volume resuscitation um, increases in weight and uh, positive uh, volume or fluids uh, at day 72 or day 72, uh, day three or 72 hours is associated with increased mortality. So basically, we're giving all these patients. So basically, I equate this to you ever go on vacation? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you go on vacation, right? So, you know, you're eating things like you normally don't. You're drinking things like, you know, having a few adult beverages, which we would never condone on the court consult RX. No, but of course not. It happens. <laughs> it happens. Um, you know, it's essentially having like that, I call it vacation weight on you but at all times. And if anything, you're exacerbating that even more. So as patients gaining, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, even 12 kilos at some and certain institutions that I've seen, um, you know, that's, that's a lot of weight to put onto a patient. And it's a lot of uh, excess volume that the uh, cardiovascular system, the renal system, all these different systems are not accustomed to utilizing. Um, and so it's really, it, really important that we're cognizant of the amount of fluid that we're putting on these patients. That's because uh, I like that you brought up the uh, the MPO thing. The MPO does not mean you have to give them fluids necessarily. No, not at, not at all, not at all. Honestly, too, if you have a patient too that like, if you have like on fluids or um, is able to correct 
um, their own volume status, those patients are much more likely to correct it better than we can ever do it. So, you know, the thirst response or uh, the renal response to excess fluid is, is so much more powerful than anything we could ever do. Good deal. I know that was a lie, and I know it's kind of like a brief overview of fluids, but really that's sort of the my best advice to everyone is uh, really that fluid, that I, again, stewardship approach. If they can just sit down, especially if they're taking a test question, what is the, what is the test person uh, trying to assess? Or if I'm in, you know, practice, if I'm in the unit, what are we trying to do with the fluids? I really think that um, looking at it as a medication and looking at it as a, uh, something that potentially could harm uh, pa patients uh, very badly, honestly, um, could potentially change practice, you know, overall. Um, one of the things that uh, I, I think I've heard come up with my PA students is asking when you would use like the combinations of where they take like, you know, hypotonic saline or something and mix it with one of the dextrose, you know, formulations. Like why would, what would there be a purpose behind that? So potentially what you, so what, what you could potentially have in terms of combination fluids is that you still need resuscitation, but the patient potentially could utilize um, some nutrition, right? So if you have somebody that's on a D5 normal saline drip, that normal saline for the most part is going to increase the intravascular space while the D5 is going to provide nutrition or at least a short-term short nutrition for those patients. Whereas if you have somebody that's on like a D5 half, um, that's something where that's a, a, that's a hypotonic fluid and that's something that potentially could uh, alleviate a hypernatremic patient or a hyperosmolar patient uh, that you want to uh, reduce the amount of osmols uh, available to the patient. So again, it's just uh, depending on the situation and depending on uh, what's going on, you have to essentially figure out what's your ultimate goal with giving the fluid and then what's in my arsenal of doing that. Good deal. Well, man, I appreciate you coming around here and uh, giving a, an overview. But um, you have a paper, too, that you published that has an uh, overview on fluids, right? We have a, yeah, I was actually going to send that to you. It's like a section that we discuss fluid stewardship with the management of uh, sepsis and distributive shock, um, which is, again, the, the majority of fluids within the critical care emergency medicine arena uh, is sepsis and, and the controversy around it. So uh, definitely can send that to you and uh, you guys can, uh, it's, it's a good paperweight if you guys ever need <laughs> to hold anything down or, or if you have a wobbly table that you want to, 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 to take care of, we'll, we'll send that to you. We finally got the answer for it. Yeah, I know it's just sitting out there in PubMed with nothing going on. <laughs> well, we'll run it through the old Instagram uh, campaign and get some more numbers on it again. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Send that to me, man. Or then uh, the PubMed ID too. And I'll link it on social media. Sounds good. Cool. Um, anything else to throw in to sum it up? No, I mean, again, if you just consider it a med, yeah, you should be good, man. Good deal. Cool, man. Well, um, I'll uh, go ahead and tell the, the 
listeners to this too. Um, the other day when these fluid questions first started hitting me, kind of like we had just finished regular class lecture and I told them I'd stick around for a little bit if anybody had questions. They started bringing up some of this fluid stuff and I, I, I told my students, I was like, yeah, this is this is definitely not my area. But I was like, hey, on one second, you know what? Let me let me call a buddy of mine. <laughs> I called him on the cell phone with uh, in front of my whole class with uh, on speakerphone, and he answers. And he's like, hey, what's up, man? And, and just totally just off the dome, just like spits all this stuff out. He can tell he's like driving down the road. <laughs> so it was pretty funny. They all thought that was pretty funny. That we're uh, we're heading to the casino. If I'm being honest, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you got to pregame the casino with a fluid lecture. With a fluid lecture, for sure, no doubt. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, cool, man. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know it's late. Um, no, dude, no, thank you. Also, I have to shout out, like, I'm wearing the merch, man. You guys, <laughs> if you're not, of course, the core console family, if you're not wearing the merch. He, like, he, for those of you listening on the podcast, his, his shirt says, uh, are your meds even evidence-based, bro? And, uh, yeah, that's one of the dorky, nerdy shirts that I've made for <laughs> for our store online. So Brian was cool enough to order that for him and several people on his team. So helped us out. For sure. But, um, all right, well, if um, I'm going to – is it cool if I put your email in the description and all that? Yeah, absolutely, man. If any questions anybody has, like I know that was a bunch of rambling, and that's sort of what – you know, fluids and electrolyte lectures are all about. So uh, if it's as clear as mud and you have questions, for sure, hit me up. Cool. I'll put you, I'll put Brian's email in there. And then uh, if you guys have any questions for me or Cole, um, our emails are down below as well. And, you know, thank you guys so much for listening. If you have um, any kind of comments, questions, concerns, email or social media is fun. You can get in touch with us in the direct message on most of the social media platforms. And, uh, yeah, if you like the podcast, throw that rating and or comment our way, too. It helps us out. Cool. Thank you guys for listening. Brian, I appreciate it, man. Absolutely, buddy. All right, bud. Later.